Hello and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm Jonathan Maliberti. Before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to Rock Bands on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast. Write us a review and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right, let's get started. Rolling Stones Part 6. Nineteen sixty-six was one of those years that changed rock and roll forever. As we'll discuss, things happened this year musically, culturally, chemically, that redefined what pop music meant. For some time, pop music was becoming more artistic. Songs were commenting on society, politics, culture, and love, and to at least some cross-section of society, music became something to engage with on a more intellectual level. Because of this, the term pop music didn't really fit in with what people like the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones had started doing. They just couldn't really be lumped in together with Bobby V, Roy Orbison, Elvis Presley, and the Contours. Instead, young people, rock stars, pop culture journalists, started to understand this new genre of pop music to be something different almost entirely. It was rock and roll, or rock music. It wasn't just newer and cooler, but its role within the culture itself was in its own way pretty revolutionary, and it deserved to be treated as such. But in 1966, the Rolling Stones, like the Beatles, were still stuck between the new world where rock and roll was an artistic movement and the old world where rock and roll was just a fun little corner of show business played by pop stars who were supposed to write love songs that teenage girls listened to. The new world was shaped by this feeling among young people that they too could be taken seriously. They could be autonomous and lead lives different from their parents. To complement this sentiment, there were two drugs, very much new to the masses, that became so important that they really shaped much of the culture. The first being marijuana, which the Stones started to smoke around 1965, and the second a psychedelic drug that was truly potent and revolutionary, LSD. LSD was both profoundly disorienting and illuminating for people who took it. An acid trip was an intense experience which would cause you to hallucinate, feel euphoric, or have revelations about your life and the world around you, uh, as well as learning about ideas of you know gratitude, love, peace, uh, you know, pretty much everything that hippies talked about. LSD could also cause people to have severe anxiety, fear, and paranoia. One thing was certain, LSD was a mind-boggling experience, and everyone who took it had something to think about after. LSD had been working its way to artists like the Beatles and the Stones for a little bit. It was all the rage in San Francisco. Young people were tripping, and the hippie movement was just beginning to take off. The summer of 1966 was the unofficial summer of love in San Francisco. It wasn't until 1967 that it was branded this way and the city became an overcrowded mecca for tripping hippies. By 1965, acid had already made its way to Britain. In fact, it was in 1965 that John Lennon and George Harrison first encountered the drug, as I talked about last season. And that same year, Brian Jones began to experiment with LSD on tour with some of his friends, like Robert Frazier, the photographer, and even other artists like Bob Dylan and Eric Burden. 
Brian was, of course, the first stone to take the drug, and he took a particular pride in being the stone that was well ahead of his less artistically inclined bandmates, as he certainly thought about it. Keith, who was interested by the drug but still kind of nervous to try it, remembers the early days of Brian's experimentation, saying, quote, Acid to Brian was something different than your average drug taker. The dope at the time really wasn't, at least as far as the rest of us were concerned, a big deal. We were only smoking weed and taking a few uppers to keep us going. Acid made Brian feel he was one of an elite. He saw it as a sort of Congressional Medal of Honor. And then he'd come on like, you wouldn't know, man, I've been tripping, unquote. Of course, this was one of those Keith quotes that might be true in retrospect. However, at the time, there was something sort of edgy and daring about it, and it was seen as a little club, as Keith and Mick would soon find out. Like I said last week, the Stones of 1965 were far more conservative with drugs than they would be in years to come. Keith's first major relationship with his girlfriend Linda Keith actually unraveled in large part because of drugs, and not drugs that he was taking either. Keith would of course be away for months and weeks at a time on tour, and while they were gone, London was getting swinging. Nightclubs were opening and acid was starting to be the thing that young celebrities did on the weekends. Linda Keith, who was only 17 when she started dating Keith in 1963, started to enjoy the nightlife, maybe a little too much, and all the drugs that came with it. The uppers, the downers, the booze, the LSD. Keith really pretty deeply disapproved of Linda's drug use, and they started to fight about drugs. Eventually, Keith came back to London to find her dating another guy before she left for New York where she would meet Jimi Hendrix. Keith was crushed, but he was still really worried about her drug use, and he even told Linda's father all about it. Keith said, quote, I went to see her parents and gave them all the telephone numbers and places where they'd find her. Linda's father went to New York and found her in a nightclub, brought her back to England, where her passport was removed and she was made a ward of the court. She felt that this was a great betrayal on my part, unquote. It's one of the great ironies of rock and roll that Keith Richards narked out Linda Keith, especially considering his drug-fueled spiral would end up threatening his life and the band on more than one occasion over the next decade. He was still totally devastated by their breakup. She was the first girl to break his heart and his first love, and he even wrote a song, lyrics and all, called Ruby Tuesday, which the Stones would record a few months later. But this just demonstrates the Stones' attitude about drugs at the beginning of 1966. They were still something to be avoided, ashamed of, and even something that they were kind of afraid of. And this would obviously change very quickly. Pretty soon, Keith was very much intrigued by Brian and his drug use, and eventually while on tour, the two of them dropped LSD together. And pretty soon thereafter, Mick followed. Just like at Edith Grove when they decided to make it as professional musicians, Keith was the first to follow Brian's lead, and Mick very cautiously waited to see if it was the right move before he did anything. Bill and Charlie, on the other hand, never used psychedelics. They were pretty wary of them from the start. Charlie later said, quote, Regretfully, I never took acid. I say regretfully because I've been terrified of the fucking stuff, and I wish I'd taken it to know about it. I think I was the only rock star never to wear a pair of beads. I wish I could have done, but it never looked right on me, unquote. 
While acid wasn't something that all the bandmates used equally, the effect of the druggy era that was starting to blossom around them became clear in their music right away in 1966. The band's first single of 66 was the stoner pop song 19th Nervous Breakdown, uh, and their follow-up single was another milestone record for them, probably one of their most famous songs of all time, Paint It Black. Paint It Black was a Jagger Richards song, but as we'll discuss, the song maybe should have been credited to their collaborative pseudonym Nanker Felge, because every member really played an integral part on this song. Brian Jones had been interested in Eastern music for some time. He was growing tired of guitar-based music, probably because he was rejecting pop due to his struggle with songwriting, and in the mid-1960s in Britain, sitars were sort of having a moment. George Harrison famously played some sitar on the Beatles' rubber soul track, Norwegian Wood, and sitar was really having a moment in London at the time. I mean, there was, you know, a lot of Indian and Hindu culture uh, in the city. There was, you know, Indian restaurants, live sitar music, Indian music at record shops. So sitars were kind of all the rage at the time. One day when Brian and George Harrison were actually hanging out, the two of them got to playing the sitar. George said of Brian, quote, I always used to see Brian in the clubs and hang out with him. In the mid-60s, he used to come to my house, particularly when he'd got the fear when he'd mix too many weird things together. I'd hear his voice shouting to me from out in the garden, George, George. I'd let him in. He was a good mate. He would always come round to my house in the sitar period. We talked about Paint It Black, and he picked up my sitar and tried to play it. And the next thing was he did that track, unquote. Mick and Keith wrote the majority of Paint It Black on tour in Australia in early 1966. Mick wrote the lyrics, which were really dark and mournful, seemingly about a man at his lover's funeral. You know, both flowers and my love, both never to come back. The day the group recorded the song, it took a serious change in direction, though. It wasn't really supposed to be an exotic-sounding record. However, Brian, Bill, and Charlie had been in the studio messing around with Brian on sitar, Bill on organ, and Charlie playing an upbeat, kind of Middle Eastern-style drum part. Brian had been developing that sitar melody for some time, which turns into the central riff and melody throughout the song, and Bill, to get a deeper bass sound, used organ pedals to emphasize his bass playing. Keith said of Bill's playing, quote, what made Paint It Black was Bill on the organ, because it didn't sound anything like the finished record until Bill said, you go like this, unquote. But all three Bill, Brian, and Charlie's contributions to the song were probably enough uh, to count as composition, but by this time, the Jagger-Richards partnership was getting credit for pretty much everything the Stones did in the studio, and there wasn't really much room for negotiation when it came to songwriting credits. The final product was completely out of left field for the Stones, and their fans, who hadn't really heard the exotic sounds and foreign instruments the band had been using in the studio. The most striking aspect of the song, though, is undoubtedly its darkness. The song just has a grim, macabre vibe, ending in that intense crescendo. Paint It Black was, of course, a number one hit, but it also did a lot for the Stones' image. I mean, in a way, it was true to form. Uh, the Stones were the bad boys of rock and roll, and with a song like Paint It Black, they definitely reflected the angry and rebellious elements of their image. But more importantly, it was a big step into that dark psychedelia, which would really define the Stones' sound for the next few years. 
I mean, Paint It Black was the precursor to songs like 2000 Light Years From Home, Sympathy for the Devil, Sister Morphine, and other songs. Songs that talked about the undesirable things in life, grief, apathy, addiction, and so on, and kind of painted the stones as a questionable force in the world. Were they a force for good or were they a force for evil? Paint It Black kind of made it unclear. The song also really resonated with fans. I mean, they'd often play it at shows, they'd open with it, and in some places, fans would just hear that opening riff and, you know, get so excited that they just started to riot on the spot, you know, something that the Stones were really getting sick of. Paint It Black was a really good supporting single for the upcoming Stones album, Aftermath, released in April of 1966. Aftermath was recorded while the band was on tour in late 1965 and early 1966 at RCA Studios in LA, and it was the first album composed entirely by Mick and Keith, a really symbolic moment for the songwriting partnership. The songs were generally pretty strong, too, and the lyrics were finally a departure from the typical Boy Meets Girl pop lyrics that dictated the theme of really the majority of pop music at the time. The opening track on the UK version of Aftermath is the highly psychedelic-sounding Mother's Little Helper, where Jagger writes about the trend of taking drugs like Valium among housewives in the UK and the US, and the risk of an overdose and abuse. Brian and Keith play that dizzying riff simultaneously, using a slide on 12-string guitars. Another standout on Aftermath is one of the Stones' most well-known songs, Under My Thumb, which to me is some of Mick and Keith's most creative songwriting to date. It's a sort of love song, but the lyrics aren't about heartbreak or love. Rather, they're about getting revenge on a lover who has wronged them, making them jealous, having control over them. It's a sort of creative way the Stones were starting to craft pop songs, and like Paint It Black, it's sort of morally ambiguous. You don't know, are they the good guys, are they the bad guys? Musically, the song has a really laid-back feel, with Keith playing that like lazy-sounding guitar solo. Of course, Aftermath also has another element that gives it a distinct sound, Brian Jones. Aftermath was the first album when Brian pretty much decided that his role in the band was not really to be a guitar player, but rather to be a multi-instrumentalist. On most songs, there is some non-rock-and-roll instrument played by Brian Jones. Much to Brian's credit, too. A lot of the songs were not just elevated, but transformed by Brian's contributions. This is a point that shouldn't be understated. A lot of the songs would have been pretty underwhelming had it not been for Brian Jones' curious mind in the studio. For example, on the song Lady Jane, Mick and Keith had composed kind of a plain, medieval-sounding ballad. Not a bad song, but not exactly memorable, until Brian added the main riff of the song using a weird little instrument called the dulcimer. Jones also adds dulcimer to I Am Waiting and Japanese Kodo on Take It or Leave It. On Under My Thumb and Out of Time, Brian's use of the marimbas, which kind of sound like a xylophone, add an airiness and a mischief to the, these songs, almost like they're expressing a certain cheekiness that wouldn't have been apparent if not for Brian's parts. This is how Brian felt his leadership in the band could be reinstated, psychedelia. By adding these new sounds and exotic vibes to Stone's records, he was differentiating himself. He was useful and even important to the band's creative process. 
but this new burst of creative energy was fueled by LSD, booze, and amyl nitrate poppers, along with all sorts of uppers and downers that he started to use throughout the day. Sadly, Brian's valuable contributions, like on Under My Thumb and Lady Jane, became way less common than Brian's unreliability. He started to miss recording sessions, skip performances, or be too zonked out on drugs and alcohol to contribute anything meaningful. Probably more than he was adding cool instrumental parts, I hate to say it. Not always, but with increasing frequency, Brian just wasn't there. They were touring all through the first half of 1966, and Brian sometimes just wouldn't show up. He would be hospitalized with an asthma attack, or he'd be off hanging with some artists or musicians in LA or New York. Keith Richards said of Brian's role during this period, quote, When he was there and came to life, he was incredibly nimble. He could pick up any instruments that were lying around and come up with something. Sitar on painted black, the marimbas on under my thumb. But for the next five days, we won't see the motherfucker. And we've still got a record to make. We've got sessions lined up and where's Brian? Nobody can find him. And when they do, he's in a terrible condition. One time, we were on a swing through the Midwest, and Brian's asthma got him, and he was in hospital in Chicago. And hey, when a guy's sick, you double for him. But then we saw pictures of him zooming around Chicago, hanging at parties with so-and-so, fawning over stars with a little silly bow around his neck. We'd done three, four gigs without him. That's double duty for me, pal. There's only five of us. And the whole point of the band is that it's a two-guitar band. And suddenly, there's only one guitar. I've got to figure out a whole new way to play all of these songs. And I never got a thank you from him, ever, for covering his arse. He didn't give a shit, unquote. During an aftermath recording session in March of 1966, Andrew Lug Oldham remembers a particular incident where nobody could deny Brian's spiraling condition. Brian showed up late to the session, completely out of it. And just a few minutes after plugging his guitar in, he fell asleep on the floor with the humming of his amplifier disturbing the recording session. Mick Jagger, who hated wasting time and was a true workhorse in the studio, was furious, and he looked at Andrew to do something. After a while, the band was recording what to do, and they needed silence for some overdubs, so Oldham went over and unplugged Brian's amplifier, a pretty symbolic moment. Of course, Brian was obviously struggling with the beginning of a serious drug addiction, something people just didn't really understand back then. Nobody knew anything about addiction, and understandably, they all sort of rolled their eyes and blamed Brian for acting irresponsibly and taking too many drugs. In 1966, though, Brian had all the odds sacked against him when it came to dealing with addiction. They thought that tough love would just snap him out of it, but obviously it was a lot more complicated than that. Released in April of 1966, Aftermath was a huge hit. Arguably the Stones' first great album, not only was it a number one, but single after single gave the Stones continued chart success. Thanks largely to Brian, it had a new flavor that was actually pushing the limits of pop music a little further. It also had a lot more texture, thanks to the more apparent piano and keyboard parts played by Ian Stewart and Jack Nietzsche. Aftermath's lyrics, written mainly by Mick, opened up the band to a new criticism, though. They were accused of being misogynistic, an accusation that they wouldn't ever really shake and was probably true. Many of the lyrics, like what a drag it is getting old in Mother's Little Helper, or the way she does just what she's told, the way she talks when she's spoken to, and she's a squirming dog who's just had her day in Under My Thumb, 
songs like Stupid Girl, all these were really interpreted as being anti-girl. Now, a lot of it has to do with the time period, plus girls were like the only thing that pop stars really wrote about back then, but they were misogynistic. Rock and roll was very much a misogynistic scene. Unfortunately, that's the truth. There were, you know, very few prominent female rock and roll artists. Uh, In their music, the Stones both worshipped women and totally objectified them, and a lot of the excessive behavior and drama that happened backstage, you know, the stuff that rock and roll is known for and, you know, the stuff books are written about, is not really cool or admirable, but actually creepy and wrong if you really get into it. So it's pretty hard to argue that the Stones' lyrics or, you know, entire scene weren't misogynistic. It's just a fact of rock and roll history. Aside from the musical changes, there were several personal and cultural changes that happened in 1966 that changed the makeup of the band a lot. As I mentioned, Keith Richards and his girlfriend Linda Keith broke up in 1966, and Mick's relationship with Chrissy Shrimpton was also on the rocks. For a while now, Mick had his sights set on the talented young pop starlet Marianne Faithful. Faithful's pop career was kicked off by Andrew Luke Oldham, who was certain she had the quality needed to be a star, and her first song was As Tears Go By, written for her by Mick and Keith. Mick was always intrigued by Marianne, but she always denied his advances. As time went on, Marianne Faithful thought that dating a Rolling Stone could be a good career move, and she hooked up with both Brian and Keith before landing on Mick. Faithful said, quote, My first move was to get a Rolling Stone as a boyfriend. I slept with three, and then I decided the lead singer was the best. I went with the one who had the most money, and that was Mick, unquote. Things were, of course, not that simple, and this is kind of half of a joke. Marianne probably wasn't that calculating, though it must be said that Mick really did admire Marianne's political side. The two began an affair in the middle of 1966, behind Chrissy Shrimpton's back. Though the new couple appeared in public together in late 1966, sparking rumors in the press and infuriating Chrissy. In December of 1966, Mick finally ended his relationship with Shrimpton by informing her rather coldly that he would not be going on vacation uh, with her as they had planned, but rather he would just leave her for Marianne Faithful instead. Chrissy was obviously devastated by the cruel way that she was tossed aside by Mick, but again, life with the Rolling Stones could often be that way, even to their own. Around this time, Bill Wyman also made a pretty big change in his life. His marriage to his wife Diane was all but over because he spent pretty much no time at home and cheated on her literally hundreds of times, and they would separate and divorce in relatively short order. In 1966, Bill met a young German girl named Astrid Lundstrom at a nightclub. Astrid would go on to be Bill's long-term girlfriend until the 1980s, and a steady member of the Rolling Stones' entourage for the remainder of the 60s and 70s. Brian's relationship with Anita was also evolving. Brian, with Anita by his side, became a psychedelic icon and a fixture of the swinging London scene. His role was diminishing in the band, but he was probably the most famous he'd ever been or ever would be. Behind the scenes, though, the toxicity of their relationship started to take hold, and the couple began fighting rather dramatically, throwing stuff at each other, cheating on each other, you know, screaming at each other in hotel lobbies, all while under the influence of drugs and alcohol, of course, though they remained very much committed to each other. 
In August of 1966, Brian took Anita to Morocco, a country that he became pretty obsessed with. But the vacation was cut short, and Brian returned to London with a cast around his arm. At first, Brian made up some excuse as to what happened to him. He fell in the bathroom. But pretty soon, it became clear that while he was in a drunken screaming match with Anita, he attempted to punch her, but he missed and punched a metal window frame instead, breaking a bone in his wrist. The injury would heal pretty quickly, but the whole inf- incident is just evidence of Brian's twisted mind, his insecurity and complex. Mixed with drugs and alcohol, this made him you know, a really nasty, terrible person, pretty often. He was petty, controlling, and obviously violent. But the really sad part is Brian probably never tried to punch anyone his own size. Never tried to attack Mick, Stu, or Charlie. Instead, he'd save the violence for his girlfriend which is something that made pretty much everyone in the band lose respect for him. This wouldn't be the last time that Brian physically assaulted a woman, or Anita for that matter, but for some reason it still appeared on the outside that Anita and Brian were still going strong. She was even pressuring him to marry her, something that he was reluctant to do. More often than not, they were still portrayed as the London it couple and hung out with all the coolest people. Pretty much all the Stones were now social butterflies, and the second half of 1966, they spent less time on the road than they had previously, and they started to really enjoy the blossoming London social scene. In the fall of 1966, the Stones released their highly anticipated follow-up to Paint It Black, probably one of their most unusual songs during this period, a song called Have You Seen Your Mother Baby Standing in the Shadows. The song features a pretty intense, fuzzy guitar part by Keith, a thundering bass line by Bill, trippy lyrics by Mick, and a blaring horn part, which was the first time the band used horns in one of their songs. The song wasn't all that well received, though, and they were pretty disappointed that it didn't reach the number one spot in the US or the UK, even though the band played it on The Ed Sullivan Show along with Paint It Black and Lady Jane. More attention was probably given to the photo shoot that the Stones did to promote the single. All five Stones dressed up like women. Sarah Jagger, Molly Richards, Flossie Jones, Millicent Watts, and Penelope Wyman, as they called themselves. Another point on the misogyny scoreboard. This was all Mick's idea, and it was something that had the potential to be pretty shocking back then. Though it must be said that a lot of what the Stones did at the time were just a few months after the Beatles did something similar. You know, songwriting, Brian Sitar, etc. The photo shoot was probably in response or at least inspired by the Beatles' very controversial shoot uh, where they were photographed in white lab coats holding butcher meat and baby doll heads. Uh, an extremely unusual change of pace for the Fab Four. In 1966, though, the Beatles' landmark album Revolver accomplished something that had been brewing at the edges of pop for a little while. Weirdness became the rule. From backwards guitar parts to nonsensical lyrics and circle glasses, uh, references to drugs, acid had touched the culture, and the Beatles made it okay and even cool to admit it. The Stones quickly followed, and acid culture took over their music. It took over their image, it took over their social lives, and unfortunately, LSD would also threaten the future of the band and send Brian Jones off the deep end. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. Next episode, we're going to talk about the Rolling Stones' 1967 uh, era, you know, between the buttons and so much more. So don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. Write us a review and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. All right. Until next time, listen to Aftermath.